hppodcraft.com. The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You, who know so well the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length, I would be avenged. This was a point definitively settled, but the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my goodwill. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his immolation. Those were the opening paragraphs of The Cask of Amontillado by Edgar Allan Poe. Yet another tale of revenge, and we're talking about it here on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're here at hppodcraft.com and Patreon. Who was that reader? <laughs> that was friend of the show, Bob Hansky. Yay! Uh, you'll remember him from our Beowulf special. He was a guest on that. And I actually mentioned him last week when we covered Hot Frog. Mr. Hansky was my high school English teacher. And we both had him as a theater director. We did. But he read this story out loud to the class my freshman year. I, re- I remember it very well. It was very entertaining. I think he wore a funny hat. <laughs> and uh, when the story came up, I remember that and I thought, I wonder if he'd be up for it. And I asked him and he was. So good to have him back. It's so good. It's a November miracle. <laughs> <laughs> we've uh, we've talked about the story here and there in the past. Uh, most recently, we mentioned it when we were covering The New Catacomb yes. by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, which was really just a ripoff of this. Yeah. Less well done. Lovecraft, I don't know what his opinions were of this story specifically. He preferred Poe's more supernatural stories like Fall of the House of Usher or the weird stuff like Man of the Crowd, mm-hmm. whereas this is more of a pretty straightforward crime story. Yeah. I'm sure he, like any critic, would have to hold this up as a masterpiece of short story construction and writing. Yeah. I honestly don't think there's a sentence out of place, and it builds effortlessly to a pretty horrifying conclusion. I think it's still, even in the modern day, pretty impactful. Yeah. The Cask of Amontillado was first published in the November 1846 issue of Gotti's Ladies Book, which may seem like a strange home for it. Gotti's Ladies Book was an American women's magazine that was published in Philadelphia from 1830 to 1878. Hmm. But it, it became the most widely circulated magazine in America in the period before the Civil War and was read by both men and women. Mm-hmm. So a pretty high profile spot to place a story. Sure. But I was surprised at first to learn, oh, this was published in a women's magazine. It just seems <laughs> odd. Yeah, like Cosmo. Yeah, exactly. Like you take your Cosmo quiz and then you read this revenge tale. The magazine was published by Louis A. Gotti, who started the publication to take advantage of the popularity of gift books, which uh, were marked specifically to women. Those were like little keepsake books that people would buy specifically to give away rather than read. Hmm. Gotti's Ladies book soon grew so much in popularity that folks bought it for themselves. I think it had a circulation of 150000 and you, you could subscribe for $3 a year, which hmm. was a lot of money for people to pay for something like this. Right, yeah. Each issue contained poetry, articles, and engravings created by prominent writers and other artists of the time. Sarah Josepha Hale, the author of Mary Had a Little Lamb, was its editor from 1837 until 1877, and she only published original American manuscripts. So the author of Mary Had a Little Lamb thought, let's publish this Poe revenge story. (laughs) And I think (laughs) I think it was because and a lot of people I don't think know this, but in the original draft of Mary Had a Little Lamb, Mm -hmm. Mary walls the lamb up in her basement. Oh, my God. No. (laughs) She's so tired of it following her around. But that was deemed too violent. So she went a different way in the final draft. 
That's not true. <laughs> but that is where the story was published. The Cask of Amontillado was, much like Hopfrog, also an act of literary revenge on the part of Poe. Let's talk about that after we go through the story. The story begins with our narrator, Montresor, telling us about the offenses of his friend, Fortunato. Ironically named since Fortunato means the lucky one in Italian. <laughs> he says a thousand injuries of Fortunato, but he doesn't go into any detail about what these injuries are. It's a mystery story, but the mystery is the motive, not the crime. Right. It's a, it's a why done it, not a who done it. It's a mystery that's never solved. No. Very unlike Hopfrog, where that was quite clear why mm-hmm. he was exacting revenge on the king and his men. And in that opening, the narrator lays out how he thinks revenge should work. He says if he's going to punish Fortunato, it's no good unless he gets away with it. Because if he gets caught and busted for it, then it's not good revenge. And it's also no good if Fortunato doesn't know that he's the one doing it. Mm -hmm. So you can't just walk up and hit him with a hammer. You know, you gotta, there has to be some kind of revelatory aspect of the revenge as well. Montresor says he's also given Fortunato no reason to suspect a coming revenge. He pretends to be his friend. I've read this story many, many times, but this time I really got hung up on something from the opening that I hadn't thought of before. Mm -hmm. He writes, You, who know so well the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. So as the reader, I'm complicit in this in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, Poe has cast us in the story. We're Montresor's friend. Oh, yeah. We know him very well. And I was wondering, like, what's the context of this? Am I cool with this? Like at the (laughs) like at the end of the story, do we have a good laugh about it? Or is this a confession years later? Oh, right, yeah. Do I work at a psychic hotline and Montresor gets a little boozed up once a week and calls in, (laughs) rattles off these self-aggrandizing stories, and I just kind of file my nails and say, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, maybe my name's Darlene? (laughs) Anyway, that's just kind of my interpretation of it. You can be whoever you want. The important thing is that Montresor has suffered thousands of injuries from Fortunato, but now some insult has pushed him over the edge. Yeah. It's this one thing also unspecified. He wants his revenge. So he's going to have to play on Fortunato's weaknesses. Fortunato believes himself to be a connoisseur of wines, mostly because it's fashionable, not for any particular love of wine and drinking wine. But, I mean, he does like to get drunk, but his taste (laughs) in his booze is rather suspect. Which I think that's a good description of all wine connoisseurs and wine experts. I think they're all kind of full of it. All of them? Well, you can certainly be a collector and know what you like and spend accordingly. There are differences in wines and, you know, there is a lot to how they're aged and created. But when people taste wine and talk about being able to identify it, that's all its bull. I hate to call you on this, but Mythbusters, there's an episode where they talk about purity of, it's not wine, but it was vodka and how many times it's been filtered. And they had a guy who was like a professional vodka taster. And he was 100% right every time. Okay. Like from one to 10, he knew like just right away, he just tasted it. Boom, boom, boom. So maybe there's something about that process, though, that does make it easily identifiable. But there was this study by Frederick Brochet in 2001. He was a PhD candidate at the University of Bordeaux. Uh-huh. It's a pretty famous study. He dyed a white wine red. Oh, yes. I've read this. And now. he gave it to 54 wine science students. The supposedly expert panel overwhelmingly described the beverage like they would a red wine. They were completely fooled. Yes. This uh, research was published in the journal Brain and Language, and the study has been replicated a lot of times as well. Wine science students. I want to just point that out. (laughs) But also with wine tasting, I'm a guy, I like good wine, Uh but there is a point that wine can only get so good. I think it's ridiculous to spend any more than $15 on a bottle of wine because wine Uh just can't get better (laughs) than $15 worth of wine. Well, hey, I'm not criticizing people. I'm not saying that people don't have different taste. Sure. There probably are folks who could 
demonstrably tell you this is a better tasting wine than this one and then you and then you drink it and agree but there's a certain level of wine snobbery that i just think is yes i think it's a little bit of it's true hucksterism yeah, you're right where they're saying oh there's notes or they say they can identify the vineyard and the year and all these things i don't think that people can can do that maybe they can i don't know about that specifically no but definitely <laughs> with a vodka Mythbusters had a guy on there and it okay. was awesome he knew what he was doing but wine is different than vodka and there's a different process that it's used to make it and everything like that. I'm skeptical. That's fine. It's good to be skeptical. And there is a certain thing about people who are a little precious about their wine tasting. And I have to imagine that even in the 1840s, people were annoyed by wine snobs. So I I think this is deliberate, even without knowing what Fortunato's insult was. We don't like him as readers because we already are thinking, well, this guy's a faker who pretends to know a bunch about wine, but really he's just a drunk. (laughs) So the story is set in an unnamed Italian town during some kind of festival. Fortunato is drunk already. He's dressed up like a jester and he's wandering the streets. As you do. Montresor pretends to run into Fortunato in the street and he tells them, oh, you know, I just bought this sherry specifically Amontillado, which is the name of the story. Mm-hmm. And he says that he bought it really quickly because it was he was getting like a deal on it, but he's not sure if it's actually Amontillado or not. Mm-hmm. So Montessori says he's on his way to see this guy, Lucchesi, to see if it's actually the good stuff or not. And Fortunato, he says, Lucchesi cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry, <laughs> which is kind of a strange thing to say because Amontillado is Sherry. Right. So this might be another clue to the actual lack of any expertise in Fortunato. It's a skillful ploy on the part of Montresor. He knows that just saying he's got the Amontillado may not be enough. Yeah. Fortunato has something else on his mind. But if he plays on this clear rivalry, mm-hmm. you know, he says some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. That's a good second motivation for Fortunato. Yes. He knows those two things, his love of wine and his competition with Lucchesi, that's what's going to get him into the caverns. So all this talk gets Fortunato to say that he will check out the wine immediately. Like, not even tomorrow or whatever. It's like, let's go check this out. I'm drunk. (laughs) Montresor says, well, you know, uh, you're on your way to someplace. You got things to do. He says, no, no, no. I got nothing to do. Let's go. Let's go check this out. Let's make this happen. Right. And so they go to his vaults underneath his house. Now, obviously, Montresor wants Fortunato to think that this whole thing is his idea. Right. You're you're going to your party. Enjoy your night. I'm going to go talk to Lucchesi. He's going to sort out for me. He's like, no, no, we're going to do it. And he goes, but where I keep the wine, it's all, the vaults are are damp and it's encrusted with nitre. You really got better things to do. And and he still insists Fortunato has got to go check out this Amontillado immediately. And nitre is potassium nitrate, also known as saltpeter. It's a white mineral found as massive encrustations and efflorescent growths on cavern walls. If it's damp, that stuff will will grow. Mm-hmm. It's used in fertilizer as a meat preservative, and it's actually a part of uh, gunpowder as well. Yes. But here it's used to impress how damp and cold the caverns are. It's not good for somebody in poor health. But as you say, Fortunato says, the cold is nothing. Let's go check out this sherry. And Montresor pulls a cloak around himself and dons a black mask as he leads him away, presumably covering his tracks so that later no witnesses will know they left together. They would have just seen mm-hmm. Fortunato with this guy all in black. So Fortunato leads uh, Montresor back to his own mansion. He knows where Montresor lives, so he's leading the way. And yeah. Montresor is just kind of hanging back, letting him you know, go there on his own. But there's nobody around the house because Montresor told his servants that he wasn't going to be home until morning and they were not to leave the house. By him doing that, he knew they would all leave the house. <laughs> he's a master manipulator. <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, they take two torches and they go down into the cellar. Fortunato's bells on his hat jingle as they walk. Poe's playing on all the senses in the story all the time. 
Montresor points out the Niter to Fortunato. Fortunato coughs a bit, and then he coughs a bunch. And Montresor asks, are you sure you're healthy? You, you maybe shouldn't be down here. Maybe this is a bad idea. And he's like, no, no, I'm fine. The cough's a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. And then Montresor says, true, true. Because, yeah. you know, he knows. <laughs> he's not dying of a cough. So Montresor gives Fortunato some wine, which he drinks. He raised it to his lips with a leer. You know, it really emphasizes his gluttonous personality. And Montresor toasts to his long life. I suspect he doesn't mean it <laughs> when he does that. <laughs> yeah. So who comments on the size of the cellar. Montresor says that he had a great and numerous family. He says that his family's coat of arms is a huge human foot, and the foot crushes a serpent whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto is, Nemo me impune lacessit. Yes. No one provokes me with impunity, which is also the national motto of Scotland. Yeah, it is. Impunity <laughs> meaning you get away with it, right? So his yes. family's all about punching back, or, or rather stomping back, be, since the coat of arms is a foot. It's crushing that snake who should... That snake's not getting away with any bites with impunity. Isn't it the other way around? Isn't it... They're the snake. Like, the Montresors are the snake. That you, you step on me, you're going to get bit. Hmm. Are they the snake or the foot? Because the foot is crushing the serpent, and the serpent's getting revenge immediately. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Okay. I think so. That makes more sense, because it's much cooler to be a snake than a foot. You don't want to be like, <laughs> hey, guys, look at me on this big foot. <laughs> much better. No, I'm that cool snake. Yeah, you're right. Now, literally, these are catacombs they're in. Uh-huh. Meaning the bodies have been buried or interred here. That's what yeah. catacomb is. It's a, yeah. it's a cemetery underground. There are skeletons about it. It says we had passed through long walls of piled skeletons with casks and puncheons intermingling. Keep that in mind, too. It's a pretty creepy environment. So Montresor gives Fortunato some de grave, which is very expensive, fancy wine. And Fortunato, he just downs it. <laughs> this is the good stuff. You should, if he was this connoisseur that he was talking about being, he would just sip it and right. be cash. And like, oh, whoa, oh, hello. What's this? And he just drinks it. Like all of it at once. He'd take a sip and then let some air go through his mouth yeah. and swirl it around in the glass and do all that kind of business. Right? Or just even like you start take a sip of it and go, oh, my God, this is oh, this is the good stuff. I'm going to savor this a little bit. But no, there's a really strange adaptation of this story in the uh, 1962 movie Tales of Terror. Mm -hmm. It's one of Corman's Poe flicks. Mm -hmm. It's actually the script was written by Richard Matheson. It's one of the better ones. Oh, it's an anthology movie, and the section, and I think it's in the middle. It's called The Black Cat. It actually adapts this and combines it with The Black Cat. But I mention it because there's a mm -hmm. wine drinking contest between Peter Laurie and Vincent Price. The scene is hilarious. I, I'll, I'll link out to it in the show notes. It's on YouTube. Oh. But Price is a totally snobby wine aficionado, and Laurie is just a drunk. <laughs> but he's just as good as Price at calling out brands and years. I mean, he's getting it just as right as the, the snob is. It's a really funny scene. I'll, I'll put it up in the show notes. So then Fortunato does some strange hand gesture, which confuses Montresor. And then Fortunato says, you're not of the Brotherhood, meaning the Masons. Mm. And Montresor says, oh, no, I am. Fortunato says, show me a sign. And then Montresor takes out a trowel, <laughs> which he just has on him, yeah. which is very bizarre. Uh, obviously, that's not what Fortunato had in mind, but he just kind of right. shrugs and says, you know, let's go check out that Amontillado. Yeah, I think that Fortunato goes, well, okay, it's a joke. He's carrying that trowel around so that if <laughs> anybody asks him if he's a Mason, he could pull it out and goes, aha. Yeah. Fortunato's a member of the Freemasons, which is a fraternal order, sort of a secret society. It's still around. Yes. My father and grandfather were actually Masons, but it has origin as a stonemason's guild, actually, yes. you know, laying bricks. And so when he shows him the trowel, he's saying, see, I'm this kind of Mason. It's supposed to be funny. I just, I kind of love that moment because it's, Fortunato must think, boy, he's just carrying that around so he can make that joke. <laughs> 
and that joke sucks. <laughs> All right, let's just go. It's, it's like an uncomfortable moment. Let's just go check out the Amontillado. I don't want to sit in this awkwardness. But what's also great about it, too, is it's foreshadowing, like, his, yeah. his death. Absolutely. Check it out. And Montresor is so confident in this that he's like, yeah, I'm just going to show him a tool of his demise right into his face, and he's not going to get it. Right. It's like in Alfred Hitchcock's rope when they kill the, they kill the boy, put him in the thing, and then serve dinner over his body. You yeah. Know? It's an, there's an audacity to the killing. Right, exactly. So they get deep into the crypt, which smells bad and has human remains just lying around, as you said. It says the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mound of some size. Within the wall thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior crypt or recess, in depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It's really tiny alcove, and the bones were piled in front of it. It seems odd that they would be there, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so he's hidden this little enclosure previously. So Montresor tells him to go inside this small crypt. Uh, the Amontillado is in there. And then he brings up Lucchesi, which gets Fortunato all lathered up again and distracted. He is an ignoramus, interrupted my friend as he stepped unsteadily forward while I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant, he had reached the extremity of the niche finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more, and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was much too astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back, from the recess. That, that all happens pretty fast. Yeah, it does. And Fortunato just must be so drunk and confused, he doesn't even really fight back. He just lets it happen. Yeah, he probably, probably doesn't even know what's happening. Yeah. He's just like, what's, go what's going on here? What is this? Oh, oh I'm <laughs> uh, chained up. How'd that happen? Why is this happening? Montresor gets sassy, and he really likes confusing Fortunato, and he tells him to pass his hand over the wall and feel the damp. He goes, once more, let me implore you to return. No, I must positively leave you, but I must first render you all the little attentions in my power. So poor Fortunato just wants to know where the Amontillado is. <laughs> he goes, the Amontillado! Montresor says, true, the Amontillado. <laughs> oh, man, he's so confused. So after that, Montresor uncovers some bricks and mortar that he had set up already, obviously under the, the bones that were piled up, and begins bricking up the crypt. Seeing this starts to sober up Fortunato. The earliest indication I had of this was a low, moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. I laid the second tier, and the third, and the fourth. And then I heard the furious vibrations of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which, that I might hearken to it with the more satisfaction, I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bones. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused, and holding the flambeaux over the mason work, threw a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams bursting suddenly from the throat of the chained form seemed to thrust me violently back. So this scares Montresor a bit, and he pulls out a rapier, which I didn't realize he even had, but he sees that Fortunato is not going anywhere. Right, he gets a hold of himself and continues his work. You know, that, that scene is 
so interesting because we're getting it just from the perspective of the murderer. Yeah. Poe lets us know that this voyage of discovery is going on in Fortunato's slow, drunken head. Yeah. By the way that he, you know, first kind of just moans and then he screams, you know, he he does it in a really interesting sensory way. Montresor builds up the wall to shoulder height. And again, at midnight, he's almost done with the wall and he has a single stone to put in. He struggles to put it in because it's big and heavy and he's probably tired. And he hears a low laugh that you know, raises the hairs on his head. Then a voice that doesn't even sound like Fortunato speaks. <laughs> a very good joke indeed. An excellent jest. We'll have many a rich laugh about it at the Palazzo. <laughs> Over our wine. <laughs> the Amontillado, I said. <laughs> yes, yes, the Amontillado. But is it not getting late? Will they not be awaiting us at the Palazzo, the Lady Fortunato and the rest? Let us be gone. Yes, I said, let us be gone. For the love of God, Montressor! Yes, I said, for the love of God. But these words I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud, Fortunato! No answer. I called again, Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in return only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick on account of the dampness of the catacombs. I hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry, I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century, no mortal has disturbed them. In passe requisat. Rest in peace. Mm-hmm. It's the end of the story. Yeah, so do you think that Fortunato knew what he had done? Like, it seems to me that he somehow realized that he was the victim of revenge. Like, like there's no point where he's going, why are you doing this? Why is this happening? He seems to kind of know. Right. Did you get that impression as well? Uh, well, he definitely comes to some kind of, it's like he goes through the uh, the stages of grief here. First, it's the denial that this is even happening. Mm-hmm. And then there's obviously a little, hey, w- come on now, aren't we supposed to be a little anger? Aren't we, where's the Amontillado? I don't understand. And then it gets to the bargaining stage at the end here. Ha <laughs> this is a joke. We're all goofing around, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. And then when he finally finishes walling it up and we just hear that jingling of bells, it's like, that's the acceptance. I'm just, this, I'm getting it. He must know. I feel like his crimes against Montresor are apparent to him. Mm-hmm. Because if somebody was doing something like this to me, I would be, why are you doing it? What did I do to possibly deserve this punishment? But he does. He never says anything like that. So it feels no. like he must know what it is that he had done. And it must have been pretty grievous as well. It doesn't get explained to us. No. I, this ending is really chilling. And it also, there's something about it that speaks to a more universal human experience, which is somebody luring you into a bad situation through a false promise. Right. And that can happen a million different ways. I think everybody's had an experience like that. And a lot of the time you, you're just so clueless. And then when you go, oh, my gosh, yeah. he's not really out of gas, you know, or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's really no friends in that cottage. You know, this I'm the only one that got invited to this party. Uh... <laughs> Those type of situations. I don't know if he knows at the end. I, I, it's just hard to know what he's thinking in there. But, of course, you close the book and then you think, well, he's going to die of starvation walled up in there and you have to kind of sit with thinking about what the next week is going to be like 
yeah. inside of that wall. It really is still an effective piece of horror. Oh, sure. I can't stop thinking about that. Every time I read this, it kind of chills me a little bit. There's something about it that makes me feel like Fortunato is a little too resolute in his predicament. Mm -hmm. I mean, there isn't obviously much he can do. Like, he struggles with his chains and all those things happen. But I would have so many questions. No, no, I hear what you're saying. I think you're right. And also, as we look into the origins of the story, I think perhaps it is something where you know what you did. Yes. So, So just two things. First, there's a legend that the inspiration for this story came from came from a story that Poe had heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to the legend, I don't know if this is true or not, but while stationed at Castle Island as a private in, in 1827, Poe saw a monument to Lieutenant Robert Massey, and he learned that Massey had been killed in a sword duel on Christmas Day 1817 mm-hmm. by a Lieutenant Drain after a dispute during a card game. So according to that legend, other soldiers then took revenge on Drain by getting him drunk, luring him into a dungeon, chaining him to a wall, sealing him in a vault. But this version of his demise, of Drain's demise, is false. Drain was court-martialed for the killing and acquitted and actually lived until 1846. Coincidentally, the year of the publication of the story. Now, a report of a skeleton discovered on the island may be a confused remembering of Poe's major source, which is a story by Joel Headley called A Man Built in a Wall, Hmm. which recounts the author seeing an immured skeleton in a wall of a church in Italy. Ah. Headley's story includes details very similar to the cask of Amontillado. In addition to walling an enemy into a head, into a hidden niche, the story details the careful placement of the bricks, the motive of revenge, the victim's agonized moaning. Huh. So m- most likely Poe had read the story and thought, I could do a better version of that. Uh. Or it impacted him, the, the coolness of the revenge impacted him when he was in this situation uh, that I'm about to describe, which is w- where this story was sort of a... Now, now with Hopfrog, we weren't exactly sure if that was an act of revenge or not, but I think yeah. it's pretty clear this one was. And I'm, I'm pulling this from Wikipedia, but here's what it says. Poe wrote his tale as a response to his personal rival, Thomas Dunn English. Poe and English had several confrontations, usually revolving around literary caricatures of one another. Poe thought that one of English's writings went a bit too far, and he successfully sued the other man's editors at the New York Mirror for libel in 1846. Oh, whoa. That year, English published a revenge-based novel called 1844. Uh, the plot was convoluted, difficult to follow, but it made references to secret societies and ultimately had that main theme of revenge. It included a character named Marmaduke Hammerhead, <laughs> the famous author of The Black Crow, uh, who uses phrases like Nevermore and Lost Lenore. It's obviously a reference to The Raven by Poe. Sure. This parody of Poe was depicted as a drunkard, liar, and an abusive lover. So it was pretty insulting. Sure, yeah. Poe responded with this story, uh, and and there are very specific references to English's novel in it that we probably just didn't see. Oh, right. Uh, Fortunato makes reference to the Secret Society of Masons, which is similar to that Secret Society in 1844. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even makes a gesture similar to one portrayed in 1844. Ah. English had also used an image of a token with a hawk grasping a snake in its claws. So this is similar to Montresor's coat of arms, All right. foot stomping on a snake. Although in this image, the snake is biting the heel. So I think it, that supports what you thought that crest was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, much of the scene in the Cask of Montiano comes from a scene in 1844 that takes place in a subterranean vault. In the end, then, it is Poe who punishes with impunity by not taking credit for his own literary revenge and by crafting a concise tale with a singular effect, uh-huh. as he had suggested in his essay, The Philosophy of Composition. Wow. So yeah, there you go. This was definitely him lashing out at uh, literary rival. There is also some thought that this could have been inspired by the Washingtonian movement, which was a fellowship that promoted temperance. The group has made the group was made up of reformed drinkers who tried to scare people into abstaining from alcohol. Poe may have made a promise to join the movement in 1843 after a bout of drinking, mm-hmm. uh, with the hopes of gaining a political appointment. People think that he was trying to quit drinking all the time. 
the cask of Amontillado could be viewed as like a dark temperance tale in this vein. Mm -hmm. Look what happens when you drink too much. Right. You can be lured into a catacomb and walled up. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, man, there's also something about, and maybe this is more telling of me than it is of of the story itself. Mm -hmm. And I... I hate harping on this Fortunato accepting the fact that he's going to be yeah. bricked into this wall and dying. Sort of giving up. It, yeah, he kind of gives up a bit or doesn't try to plead or try to, to beg or talk this guy out of it. But there's kind of an acceptance of, well, I've done things and this is my penance. This is how it ends for me. Mm-hmm. And I get it. And I deserve it. It makes me think of past transgressions I've done. Nothing, obviously. I, I think that would result in <laughs> me being bricked into a wall. Nothing that merits this punishment. This idea that there's sort of a cosmic justice yeah, in the sure. universe. And then that part of it is my comeuppance will come at some point for whatever it is, the things that I've done. Uh-huh. And then I also go on the other side of that. And I think that there is no cosmic justice, that things just happen Bad people get away with stuff all the time. Good people get punished for things they've never done. Right. That's also something that happens. This story makes me go into a bit of a spiral. <laughs> Good. In a great way. It makes me think about a lot of things yeah. in post writing that it's so good. In so few words, it it evokes so much and communicates these ideas mm-hmm. in a way that are is just very provocative and yeah, and I loved it. And it's it's the strong suit of the story is that you don't know what those motives are. He's a character a little bit like Iago in Othello. Mm. He does all of this terrible stuff to the people, but you you have to kind of guess at why he's doing it. But I think the reason Poe did that is because he wanted English to read this and you know what you did, yeah, right. <laughs> so he's not going to spell it out in the story, but that ends up being the. The strength of the story. And the interesting thing is, is that he uses these verbs like leering and, and refers to him guzzling the wine and his drunken behavior. The narrator's running him down and trying to make you not like him. But in the end, as you're saying, like you ended up identifying with the victim. Yeah. Despite all of that. Despite all of it. Yeah. Pretty artful story when you can pull that effect. Yeah. Off. Because he specifically because he hasn't done We don't know what he has done. Right. So we kind of give him I, well, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. Because if he goes, yeah, he raped and murdered my mother, then it'd be like, oh, yeah, that guy needs to get bricked into a wall. (laughs) Sure. But then the law would be involved. I mean, this story really gives you the impression that Montresor is crazy. Yeah. Or that he's the type he's going way overboard on this perceived insult. Maybe he did insult him or question his honor or Fortunato's not even aware that he did it. He thinks they're friends. Yeah. So what could this insult really have been? Uh, Man, I just uh, I think about like being a young person. And how people can be very cruel when you're young mm-hmm. and people will say terrible things yeah. as a joke, but also maybe as to be cr- intentionally cruel, but they'll play it sure. off as is. it's supposed to be funny or something. So there's that weird, uh, maybe in these kind of aristocratic circles that these guys were in, uh, Fortunato would say really cruel things, maybe intending it as a joke, but also maybe trying to put this guy in his place. Mm. There's kind of an ambiguity to it where you can't really go. I mean, you can't go to the authorities and say this guy said mean things to me. (laughs) Right. I think it was either like a passive aggressive insult like that or he was talking behind his back and he's duplicitous. Sure. And it got around to Montresor. Yeah. But even that, it's not worth being walled up alive. No. God, no. Jeez. But anyway, yeah, it's a freaking great story. Poe is a legend for a reason. I mean, it's just really a perfect story. And uh, we're going to be doing more Poe this month. It is Poe-vember, after all. It Next week, Poe-vember. we have got The Telltale Heart, which is another sort of revenge story. It's certainly 
perspective of the murderer story, mm-hmm. the motivations in that are even more murky and insane. Yeah. So I, it's a neat uh, trajectory we're on here, going from Hop Frog to this. Yeah. That. So that's going to be a, a cool trip. I'm going to thank Bob Hansky for reading for us, Mr. Hansky. Oh, Mr. Hansky, thank you so much. It's so good to hear your voice again. Uh, you you were such an inspiration to me as a young man, and I uh, I love you. <laughs> I love you too, Bob. I'm comfortable saying Bob. I can do it. I still it doesn't feel right saying Bob. Yeah, I, I know just, it doesn't. I'm lying. I'm lying to myself. <laughs> but you know who I don't want to lie to are our patrons. I want to tell them the truth that they're awesome. Yes, they are awesome. I'm going to say a few of their names right now, and I'm going to start with Michael Littlejohn. Thank you, Michael. Christine McCann. Scott Benson. Judy Morris. Aaron Kimbrell. Bill Jensen. Eric Gordon. Eric in Chicago. Eric uh, Street Pizza. Oh, yeah, Eric. We hung out with Eric. Yeah. yeah. That's right. We had some street pizza with there. It's not pizza that you buy on the street. That's pizza that is on the street that you eat. Yeah, you sit on the street and you eat pizza. I want to thank Connor Fitzpatrick. I want to thank Jonathan Alvis. Clint Page. And Becca Reed. Thank you so much for uh, being part of the team and supporting the show. We're so grateful to have you and I uh, hope you're enjoying November. We'll be back with more of it next week. For now, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Ah!